Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the podcast, and for those who have been with us for some time, to thank you for continuing to listen as we enter our third season. The Folklore Podcast is not funded by advertising. It is a labour of love, which is generously supported by many listeners via our Patreon page who help us to carry on presenting these episodes. My thanks to them especially, and to those who help in other ways by sharing the social media messages and helping the audience to grow. The podcast continues largely unchanged for this season, although, as those who already subscribe to the newsletter will know, the release dates will be a little more flexible this year, as will the mix of guests and my own episodes. But there will still be two a month. Make sure you subscribe and follow our social media to make sure you don't miss out. Now, on with the start of this season, and the first interview of the year. If you search eBay, Gumtree and other online sales sites, you will easily find many objects for sale which purport to be haunted. Prams, dolls and even cars may be counted among these. Usually the item is a one-off, and there is of course little or no basis in fact or evidential detail. There is a piece of artwork which has been around for far longer, and has a very long and involved narrative attached to it. It may be found in thousands of homes in differing prints, and is usually known as the Crying Boy. This image has a wonderful and fascinating urban legend attached to it, a legend which has been tracked and analysed for many years by my guest on this episode of the Folklore Podcast, Dr David Clark. David was an investigative newspaper journalist for many years, before completing a PhD in folklore at the University of Sheffield, and then joining Sheffield Hallam University, where he now teaches media law. His publications and wide experience as a broadcaster and consultant for the National Archives UFO project have brought international recognition to Sheffield Hallam as a centre of expertise in the study of contemporary legends. Today, I am delighted to be able to pass some of that expert commentary on to you, courtesy of David Clark. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Folklore the beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history, and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hi David, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. 
Hi, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, we're going to talk today about um, a particular haunted object case, which I, I, I have found interesting for a long time, um, which is the Crying Boy painting. Now, some people will be familiar with this case, some won't. Um, I've known about it for a little while, but not in as much detail as I did when I heard you speak on the subject at one of the Folklore Society conferences a few years ago. So for those people who are not familiar with, um, I think we should call it the Curse of the Crying Boy. Yep, yeah, we can call it TCB for short, if you like. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> for those for those that are not familiar with this allegedly cursed painting and its backstory, give us a little bit of a potted history of the story. Well, my um, the, the the reason it first came to my attention was um, as a result of um, uh, my first job as a rookie journalist, which um, was a, 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 an evening newspaper called The Star, which is based in Sheffield in South Yorkshire. And I was um, based at the at one of the district offices of this, um, of this newspaper in the mid-1990s, and I'd heard about The Curse of the Crime Boy, because I'd seen the stories that were published in The Sun about a decade before that, but I didn't realize how close to home this actual this this particular urban legend was until i began working in um the office the rotherham star office because one of the um the the, the senior journalists who i sort of learned my trade from uh, ray parkin he he was a, sort of a, a, a fountain of local lore and legend and, and he he said yeah i remember that story when we, when we discussed this and he said yeah i remember the uh, the reporter who actually um created the legend and there was this guy called john murphy and he was um he was actually doing the job that i was doing in the mid 1990s during the mid 80s and he'd gone out to a um what we would call as journalists a, a, a nib which is a news in brief story and this was on a um during the silly season after the August bank holiday and there was new, there was not much going on and there was a report of a um, a chip pan fire at a village called Swallownest which is on the outskirts of Rotherham which is a small mining town and um he went out there and he spoke to the um the the family who whose house had been really badly damaged by this chip pan fire there was no no mystery about the fire at all um, it, it was caused by someone being careless, but the, the bizarre thing about it was that um, that the the front room of the house had been completely gutted, and the only thing that, had, that was left on the wall, completely untouched, was this painting. Or a, a, it wasn't a painting; it was a print, popular print at the time that sold in its thousands, no, known as the Crime Boy, and it's basically a print showing a small child, don't know, about five, six years old, uh, painted in profile with tears rolling down uh, its cheek from one of its eyes. And this was an extremely popular print during the 1960s and 70s. And it's been estimated that something in the order of about a quarter of a million copies of this print that was attributed to a mysterious Spanish painter called Bragolin uh, were sold to people often from working class communities in the North and Midlands. Just about everyone in that area had or knew someone who got a copy of the print on their wall and the interesting thing about the story was that the one of the firefighters that had gone to this um, blaze spoke to the reporter from the star chef uh, rotherham star and said um this is really strange because i've been a firefighter for a good 20 odd years and 
I have been to so many blazes like this where houses have been gutted, plaster has come off walls, and yet this mysterious print, this, this print of this small child crying and various copies of it, there wasn't just one, whole series of them, somehow had survived the, the blaze. And he wasn't saying there was anything... Um, supernatural about this he was completely pragmatic about this and, and he, as a fireman he was just thinking how does it survive and he, it was a mystery to him but with the intervention of the journalist the story became a curse and where this idea of the, the print being cursed came from is the real sort of enduring mystery that i find intriguing and the story was published in the rotherham star um on the 2nd of september 1985 under the headline curse of the crying boy so the curse actually was obviously circulating oral tradition before september 1985 but that's when it suddenly made that leap into print um where it was depicted as a curse or a jinx and this story was spotted by um a local um stringer which is um, a reporter who picks up stories and sells them to the nationals and within two days it was on page 13 of the sun um, under the headline "Blazing Curse of the Crying Boy," and from there the whole the story just became, well, an urban legend or a proto legend, as Jan Brunvan would have, would call it. And thousands of people started saying, "I've got one of these prints. Is it cursed? What should I do with it?" So it, it created this huge um, level of anxiety in people right across the UK. And the Sun used to was running stories about this crying boy painting. Uh, for the rest of 1985 and into 1986. So that basically is the um, the origins of the story. But as I later discovered, that really wasn't the origins because there is a backstory to this as well. So we'll come to that backstory in just a second. But, but before we do, um, what happens subsequently once the national newspapers start to print this story... Um, what are they starting to hear from other people who own a print of the crying boy? Well, you get a whole um, bunch of um, things happening in that what you find within families is that you get this sort of gender division in that you get um, females um, who regard the print as something that they treasure, that's something that, you know, they actually like the, the, the image, that it's something that, that represents sort of home to them and children and looking after orphan children, this kind of thing. Nobody knows who this child is, um, but it looks like it's upset. It looks like it's been ill-treated. Therefore, you know, the natural sort of instinct is, to, you know, to sort of look after it. Whereas you get the... Um, the male members of the family who take an instant dislike to it. And uh, it, I think it's quite interesting that Kelvin McKenzie, who is the editor of The Sun, who promoted the story in his paper at the, this time, his idea was that um, a lot of the, um, the the people who were working up this idea of it being cursed were actually male members of families who didn't like the print and the idea that it was cursed gave them an opportunity to get rid of it, <laughs> which I think is quite an intriguing to, to, to take on the uh, the legend it's interesting actually uh, anybody who listened to the the last episode of the podcast uh if this goes out next um where we spoke with um chris joseph about uh jeff the talking mongoose and and that whole um poltergeist or alleged poltergeist legend mm. from the 1930s 
we find a similar thing there where one of one of the explanations for that is that the mother and daughter who are living on this isolated farm in the middle of nowhere on the Isle of Man essentially um, invent this story or, or propagate this story because they want uh, to use it as a springboard to leave the island and go and live somewhere, you know, that's that's more habitable. <laughs> and I guess it's a similar sort yeah. of thing here of people trying to, to uh, in this case, get rid of something that they don't like. Yeah, and you get all the um, you get a lot of other stories of people coming forward and saying, "Oh, this explains why I've had such a a run of bad luck in in my family." And there was there was one woman saying that ever since she acquired a copy of the um, of the Crime Boy print, you know, her husband had died, her son had had been involved in some horrific car accident, and you get people sort of blaming all the ills that they've suffered on this particular painting as a result of something they've read in a newspaper. And the Sun played on this and it printed a whole series of stories throughout September and it built up this anxiety. Um, and then um, they printed a story basically saying, you know, if have you got a copy of the, um, of, the, of the print and do you want to get rid of it? If so, send it to us and we will get rid of it for you. And what what happened is on Halloween, interestingly, they chose to do this on Halloween. Um, they, they 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 collected, I think, something in the order of about two thousand copies of this print that that readers had sent in, and they were absolutely filling one of the storerooms and spilling out onto the corridor. And they managed to persuade Thames Valley Police, because no, no, the other, um, sorry, Thames Valley um, Fire Service, to allow them to build a pyre of these paintings. And they shipped their fine arts correspondent, as they called their um, reporter, who was doing the story, with a, a group of page three girls. Uh, and they went and, and posed, set fire to these um, um, prince of the crime boy and it was almost like an exorcism of the curse that the sun had actually created itself so <laughs> it's really 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 interesting full circle there but did it go any further after that i mean if they're if they're burning 2000 copies of this print they should theoretically be having the worst luck imaginable did they take the story any further once they'd done this well it's Interesting, you should say that because there was a the 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 worst stories that occurred after this um, sort of ritual burning, uh, published by the Sun and by the Mirror and some of the other tabloids. And there was um, it, it was interesting. I think it was the Mirror who were the big rivals of the Sun at the time. They were involved in a circulation war, and the somebody writing in the Mirror, I think it was, said um, that it was interesting that it was in the aftermath of this crime boy. Um, uh, hoax, as they called it, that the sun had worked up, that there was the huge um, industrial dispute at Wapping and all the various other problems that were visited on the sun at the time. And it was saying that, that basically this, this may have been one of the outcomes of the curse that they'd been <laughs> messing with. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, Kelvin McKenzie, who would become a bit of a notorious figure, as who was the editor at the time, um, Obviously, the journalists were, were, were thinking, um, you know, what, what the hell is he playing at working up this story? But if you look at some of the other stuff that was that was in the Sun around that period, the Sun was a, was a fantastic source of urban legends, and Mackenzie seemed to have sort of recognised that there was a great appetite amongst the Sun readers for these kinds of stories. Because, I mean, your readers will probably be aware of the the classic um, some of the classic headlines from the Sun at that time, such as "Freddie Star ate my hamster." Yeah. Um, werewolf on the loose in South End, and whilst I was doing the um, my content analysis for the um, paper that I'm writing on the Crime Boy, I, I went, went through a whole 
a full sort of year run of the sun from the mid 1980s and I, I found some classic urban legends even some of them on the um the front page of the um of the paper including one about a budgie in a microwave and all, all you know the real classic Brunvan stuff and Kelvin McKenzie has admitted uh, in an interview he did with um, um, Radio 4, I think it was, that he, he is a very superstitious man and that although he was sort of playing up this curse of the crime boy, at one stage when um, in the middle of the campaign one of his reporters turned up with a copy of the crime boy in the editorial office and he'd, he'd actually taken down a copy of, of a print of Winston Churchill which had been on the, um, on the wall during the Falklands War and replaced it with a copy of the crime boy and he said that um, Mackenzie went absolutely nuts when he saw it he said take that down, take that down it's bad luck <laughs> and he, he was absolutely serious apparently so he, here it is, this sort of hard-nosed editor of you know, the, the Britain's favourite tabloid that was, that was scared of a painting of a small boy crying but these, these, um, these kind of portentous stories which are very common aren't they within within folklore that either relating to objects or to ghosts or to people or to various other events they do take hold very easily because we are inherently superstitious as a species and i think people just don't want to chance their arm against these things if if there's a chance that something may be unlucky they'd rather hedge their bets and and just go with what they know i think so that that kind of doesn't surprise me so is this an end to the story once they have all these paintings and they burn them and uh, that sort of big event happens does the curse of the crying boy die away absolutely not no because because what you've got at that time in the mid-1980s is basically a new story about the existence of the phenomenon, and that appears to be the actual legend at that time. But um, Georgina Boys from the Folklore Society, who did a really interesting paper on this for um, Perspectives of Contemporary Legend, 1989, um, she lived in Rotherham and she interviewed some of the firemen who had been the source of the story originally they, it had been circulating within their sort of uh, group their, their sort of folk group for many many years because they they were the ones who were keeping a log of these house fires that they'd gone to and she found, she went to interview Alan Wilkinson who was the station manager at Erskine Road um, in the mid 1980s and he was a, a really huge source of, of these stories and he was trying to play down the supernatural side, and he was saying, oh, I'm blaming it on the journalists for coming up with this curse, this idea of a curse. But he was coming out with stories that suggested he was as, as superstitious as Kelvin McKenzie. And it's interesting, you've got this interplay between these two groups, the journalists who are looking for a good story, and you know the, the adage that, why well, let the facts get in the way of a good story, and the firefighters. And Kelvin McKenzie says that the reason he picked up the story in the first place when he saw it in the agency copy was that the origin of the story for him as, as an editor was the fact that it came from a firefighter who is regarded as by journalists as a credible source, not from an ordinary member of the public who'd written in with the story. The, the reason he thought this was a story that would run and run was that it came from a firefighter who you, we all expect to be hard-nosed, not superstitious, etc., etc. But even the firemen 
at Rotherham Station. Apparently, um, the, 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 the Alan Wilkinson, when he retired, as a joke, his mates presented him with a copy of this um, one of these crime boy prints. And again, like Mackenzie, he wouldn't, he didn't want it. Didn't want, to, didn't want to bring bad luck. That was his um, response to it. So, like you said, Mark, it just shows that people say they're not superstitious. They say that, you know, folklore is something that other people have, not them. But all professions, all all people, all folk, we all have laws and, and law and superstition that we pretend we don't partake in, but we do. Absolutely, and, and it's often stronger than we realise as well. So do we still yeah. find now these ideas of this painting being unlucky um around are people still reporting strange events connected to this painting now absolutely yeah 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 um i mean on my website folklore and journalism the page on the crying boy um is that is the most popular um in terms of individual views i mean i put a um, a post a, a page on there in 2011 which was actually um, the text of a piece I wrote for 14 Times magazine. And since that time in 2011, it's had 73,316 unique visitors. And it, it, it's, when I look at my statistics on my um, blog, it's the, it's the one page that gets the most views and the most comments. And if you do a Google search, which I did um, just before I did this um, podcast, um, I'd searched on the Crime Boy Curse, and it, it brings up 5 million hits. And the interesting thing is, what we haven't discussed is how this um what what was a proto legend i think you'd call it um in the 1980s a media created um legend jumped between 1985 from its source in rotherham it suddenly became an internet phenomenon between 1985 and 2005 in that sort of 20 year period and i've traced this to a um a story that was published uh, by a writer called tom slemon in a book called Haunted Liverpool. And he, in that book, creates a narrative that explains why the painting is haunted. And if you like, I can, I can read um, the, um, the text that provides the, the narrative. Mm, because I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned this, um, the, 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 one of the um, mysterious artists who doesn't appear to have a, um, a biography that you can actually track to source. It, it was... The guy called Bragolin, who whose name is signed on some of these crime boy prints, and this um, this this artist was supposed to have been Spanish, but he has several pseudonyms. Um, one of which is Francho Seville, Seville, who was, was apparently um, an artist who lived in Madrid. So it appears he used several different names. Um, another, another name he used is Bruno Amadio. Um, now, according to Tom Sleman in this story, his source for the the story behind the painting was someone called George Mallory, a schoolmaster from Devon, and he claims to have uncovered the truth in 1995. And Mr Mallory claimed he'd tracked down the artist behind the controversial crime boy portrait, an old Spanish postcard artist named Francho Seville, who lives in Madrid. Now, Seville said the crime boy was originally a little street urchin that he'd found wandering around Madrid in 1969. He never spoke and had a very sorrowful look in his eyes. Seville painted the boy, and a Catholic priest said the boy was Don Benillo, a child who had run away after seeing his parents die in a blaze. The priest told the artist to have nothing to do with the runaway because wherever he settled, fires of unknown origin would mysteriously break out. 
and the villagers called him Diablo because of this. Now, Seville ignored the superstitious priest and looked after the boy. He took him in. And the paintings of the little sad orphan that he produced made him fairly rich. But one day, his studio was mysteriously burned to the ground and he was ruined. And he accused the little Don Benillo of arson. The boy ran off crying and was never seen again. And then from all over Europe came the reports of the unlucky crime boy paintings causing blazes. Seville was also regarded as a jinx, and no one commissioned him to paint or would even look at his paintings. And then in 1976, a car exploded into a fireball on the outskirts of Barcelona after crashing into a wall. The victim was charred beyond recognition, but part of the victim's driving licence in the glove compartment was only partly burned. Now, you know what's coming next. The name on the licence was one 19-year-old Don Benillo. Could this have been the same Don Benillo who had been the subject of the crime boy painting eight years earlier? We will probably never know. So that um, narrative was committed to print in a book called Haunted Liverpool 4 that was published in 2000. And if you go online and search on the Crime Boy Curse, you will find now that that narrative is all over the internet, um, hundreds and hundreds of sites repeating that story. And now there is absolutely no truth behind the story at all, as far as I can see, because I've tried to track down this George Mallory. Um, I've tried to communicate with um, Tom Slemon, who's the, who created this narrative. And, of course, all those leads... Um, don't take you anywhere because this is a classic urban legend but georgina boys when she looked at these the stories that were circulating in the 1980s she said at that time that there didn't appear to be um any narrative associated with the crime boy which would explain how it came to be the source of the fires but it's just interesting that tom slemon provided that narrative and allowed this particular legend to leap from that sort of tabloid proto-legend into a, an international legend. So it, it jumped from that sort of South Yorkshire origins um, onto the international stage. And now if you look online, there's stories about it from Brazil, from South America, from um, North America, and from Australia. And um, I went on uh, eBay and Gumtree earlier today, and I found literally dozens of copies of the um, various copies of this Crime Boy print and on f for sale, some for £150, some for hundreds of dollars, So, and most of them um, suggesting that this was a collectible print and that the curse associated with it increased its value. And I was most amused to read uh, people saying, you ought to read David Clark's blog on this subject <laughs> if you want validation of the uh, of how important this, this painting is. <laughs> That's really interesting as well, is it? Because uh, the both of those websites to the best of my knowledge have policies that prevent you from saying that objects are haunted or cursed or any of these things because you can't substantiate the claims um, exactly. but it's a good selling point isn't it and it's a fantastic yeah. narrative that was created as well i mean it is worthy of mr james or any any other kind of well-known writer of, of this particular type of narrative isn't it what do we know about tom slemon um, just that he's a very popular um, writer and um, journalist uh, based in Liverpool, and he's produced literally dozens of um, of books collecting uh, ghost stories, urban legends of uh, Liverpool and Merseyside that have sold in their thousands. And he's got a really easygoing sort of popular writing style. 
and he's a great storyteller and he's 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 pretty much following in the footsteps of people like kelvin mckenzie um the editor of the sun and um journalists who played the part in creating this um legend in the first place because journalists are also storytellers you know all the best journalists are the ones who can tell the best stories so i think it's um it doesn't help us in sort of in, in sort of classifying this story as true or false it's, it's more interesting to sort of look at it in terms of why does why do people believe it and why do people um feel that this um this this particular print and don't forget this is not a painting when we when we talk about um, stuff like this that you can trace back into medieval times. Usually you've got an actual original painting that's been imbued by some kind of special power um, by virtue of how it's been created on what the subject matter is. Here we're actually talking about not an actual painting, but a replica of a painting. We don't have the original, but we have hundreds and thousands of copies, prints of an original. And there isn't one crying boy. There's a whole set of crying boys, and there's even crying girls and one of the stories that's emerged in the 1990s is that if you've got a crying boy and a crying girl and you put them together, it averts any evil influence. <laughs> so you've got, all, you've got all these additional stories. And, you know, we mentioned um, this this character that is at the centre of Ton Slemon's story, this mysterious Bruno Amadio, Francho Seville, um, Bragolin character. Now, mm. he has actually been traced to source. He did exist. And he was an Italian painter um, who was born in 1911 and died in 1981. And he apparently made a living um, painting um, street, street urchins that he sold on the streets of Venice after the Second World War because he, he, he was, like many Itali Italian people at that time, um, needed to make a living. And he was an, a talented artist and he found that these drawings, paintings, sold well to tourists. In, after the Second World War. And the interesting thing was, um, these crying boys, they've all got really big eyes. This is one of the features that stand out. And um, he wasn't actually doing anything original by painting um, children in this way, uh, because there was a famous American painter called Margaret Keane. You may have heard of her, because there was a, a film made called Big Eyes, all about her life story and about how she um, became hugely famous, or her husband did anyway, uh, because he was posing as the actual um, artist uh, for many years. But she, she painted lots of these um, children, crying children with huge eyes in the 1950s. And this sort of form of, this weird form of art seemed to have sort of hit a, I don't know, it was something that appealed to people. So you've got a whole bunch of other people, such as Bruno Amadio, who started um, copying that style. And, and painting children with huge eyes, tearful eyes, and found that those paintings sold for some reason. Why was it that that kind of art appealed to people? Why would you want a picture of a crying boy on your wall? That's one thing, one question I was asked by someone in Rotherham when I was doing my fieldwork on this. And it is a good question. Um, maybe it's because um, we get eyes in a lot huge eyes in a lot of sort of archaeological contexts and folkloric context and it, and it is actually for small children it's the first thing they recognize in parents you know you look into the eyes of your parents when you're when you're a child you know it's the thing that distinguishes us as individuals you know how our eyes appear so there's there's, there's lots of sort of folkloric and archaeological and 
anthropological sort of links that you can make with these stories and more ancient tales about um, haunted portraits, for instance, and haunted paintings. There's so many links you can make between um, these various um, links in the crime boy chain. Well, the eyes are the window to the soul, aren't they? And that's, I, I guess that's part of the uh, the appeal of Absolutely. them as well. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So, so you've got this um, evolving legend that the interesting thing was when I first heard about it, I thought the story had originated in South Yorkshire with these firemen and with the son and Kelvin McKenzie picking up the story and turning it into a sort of a, a mass media urban legend. But it's only years later that I've actually sort of checked all this out and got the backstory and realised that you know, these paintings were sold in their thousands in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And that there was obviously various sort of um, traditions and folklore about them circulating orally before it made that jump into print and th- and then made another jump into print with the narrative. And then it finally made the final jump onto the Internet, mm. where now it's become an international phenomenon. And I, 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 I don't know. I just keep collecting more and more material about it every year that passes, and it's 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 a real, it's a phenomenon. It is. It is. And we see, and there are parallels, aren't there? We see it in other things as well. You know, we we spoke uh, right at the beginning of of this podcast um, in episode one when we spoke with Andrea Kitter about the Slenderman phenomena. That's another thing yep. that I mean, the difference there is that we can pinpoint the origin. We know exactly where it came from. But this whole propagation of the story afterwards, it follows very, very similar lines with lots of other folklore stories and traditions, the, the way that they spread. We can see it with Slenderman, uh, and we see the same thing here. I think what what makes this case of particular interest to folklorists perhaps as well um, is that there are all these parallels. You know, there are lots and lots of allegedly haunted dolls and prams and paintings and anything else you might think of you know if you look at ebay you'll find you'll find millions of them um but this obviously has this long story and tradition attached to it but there are also other elements that that we find in other places within um folklore i guess as well um there's this mass hysteria aspect that's that's um kind of driven on by the media isn't there um there's the whole uh video nasty um censorship issue which came up in the 1980s again driven by similar newspapers such as the sun in the uk um where you know uh, films like child's play are are singled out and said you know if if you want to get rid of your copy of this video nasty in big air quotes (laughs) send it to us and we'll have a bonfire they they love having bonfires with these things don't they um but i the and the other thing that springs to mind as well is the whole dungeons and dragons satanic panic kind of um storyline as well um how do you see those as being parallels within to us as folklorists with with this particular case um well i agree with the um the fact that the the way that the tabloids uh, basically act as uh, as sort of um collecting points for these kinds of uh, urban legends and they actually i mean sorry it's awful pun they fan the flames and they encourage them yes and that this whole thing whereby you know we'll build up the cur- the idea of the curse and then we'll have a big uh, burning session and, and, it, and it's it's like and they will 
of course, ignore all the stories about houses that have been burnt down to the ground with crime boys in them and the crime boys have been obliterated. And it's interesting that um, The Sun in 2010 published um, a, a piece by Steve Punt from Punt PI, which was a, a, a Radio um, 4 a program that looked into the curse of the crime boy and on there um, Pum, um takes a copy of the painting to a government um, um, research establishment in Watford where they actually do research on um, on how fires start and they, there's, a, there's a video, you can find this on YouTube um, where it actually shows you them trying to destroy a copy of the crime boy and it's interesting when you watch this, it doesn't burn but there's nothing supernatural about the, re- the, the reason why it doesn't burn. And it's because uh, it turns out that um, it, it was um, the actual painting was, was created on heat-resistant cardboard. So that's the reason it doesn't burn. And also the, uh, the guy that Steve interviewed suggested that one of the other reasons why this print might have survived was that if you can imagine a print on a wall that's hanging from a wall on a piece of string and the fire going up the wall, it burns the string and the print then falls onto the floor, which obviously is going to be the, the coolest place in the house with the fire rising. And that might, might explain why some of these prints had survived. So th- those are the, the basic facts. But if you're a newspaper reporter, you don't want to look into the story to that extent because it, it sort of kills it kills the story. You know, it debunks it. Mm. And if you're having fun and you're selling lots of copies of your newspaper by building this thing up, what the last thing you want to do, if, you, if you've got a slow news day, and this is exactly how Kelvin McKenzie explained um, how the story sort of um, gained um, the purchase it did in 1985, it was like they had nothing else to publish. The, you know, the, the, it, it was obviously popular. People were buying copies of The Sun to read about it. So why look into the story, into the facts of the story? Um to that extent that you would kill it off. And I think you can apply the same sort of um, logic, news values, to some of the stuff that you were mentioning about the video nasties. You know, anybody who watched those um, those films now, you would just think, what was all the fuss about? Yeah. But at the time, it provided the fodder that they needed to sell copies of, their, of the tabloids. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a cultural thing as well, isn't it? You know, we're looking at the 1980s as far as that whole kind of video nasty um, uh, story went um, and, and videos that were deemed to be kind of highly unpleasant in the 1980s really are, <laughs> get a much lower certificate these days for a start, don't they? Um, yeah. So it is kind of rooted in its time. I wonder as well, um, I mean, this is a... a sort of a really typical example of an urban legend and I'm thinking about the kinds of things that are collected by people like Jamber and Vant I'm looking at one of his books across the room here from me on the shelf at the moment um, and the the term was coined years ago wasn't it for these kind of um, folklore stories so friend of a friend stories you know it, it didn't happen to me but it happened to a friend of um, somebody that I know and I've heard yeah. A number of stories told to me as as true that I know full well are not. Um, I'm I'm thinking of um, something like the kind of um, cyst in a Kentucky Fried Chicken 
story where somebody bites into a piece of fried chicken and, and bites into a cyst. And, uh, you know, it's very unpleasant. Uh, that was told genuinely told to me by somebody I used to work with as having happened to a friend of theirs. Uh, but it's a very common story, a bit like, you know, uh, Kentucky Fried Rat and those sorts of things. They're all yeah. variations the on a theme. Or the Phantom Hitchhiker. Or the Phantom Hitchhiker, yeah. yeah. They're, all, they're all variations on a theme. Have, have you come across examples of the crying boy curse being told to you as true by people who it didn't happen to, but they knew somebody that it had in your field work? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So many examples. I, I, I have lost count. I mean, quite quite recently, I think it was only about 10 years ago, I did a, um, a piece about um, the crime boy um, for the, the what what is now the, the newspaper that covers the same area that um, the, orig- the story originated, you know, in Rotherham for the Sheffield Star. And my inbox was literally filled with emails from people saying um, either that they had a copy of The Crying Boy or they knew someone who'd, who'd had it and they'd had a terrible runs of bad luck. And one, one person saying that they'd, they'd, um, they'd inherited a house um, a member of their family had died, and they'd found this copy of the Crime Boy, and that the this person's wife wouldn't enter the the house because she was so scared of it. And they'd actually moved this painting into a garden shed and surrounded the shed with fire extinguishers. And would I come and take take the print away <laughs> so that they could they could go into the house and feel safe? <laughs> so, what do you say to that kind of? Um, email yeah well yeah you 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 are you have become the uk equivalent of john zaffis there really haven't you and um, you know please don't send me your copy of the crime boy no don't we won't we won't send you copies of the crime boy but but you do still collect stories for it don't you yeah i'm more interested in stories about it rather than physical copies of it although i have entertained um, a fantasy of at some stage opening a sort of a, a museum of sort of um, the bizarre folkloric um, material culture where I could have a whole sort of display of copies of the crime boy, some of them water damaged and others sort of <laughs> slightly singed. <laughs> I would pay good money to come and see that. I really would. Um, so in all seriousness, um, we have an international audience for this podcast. There are, there are people all around the globe that, that listen to this. Um, so it would be really useful if if any of the listeners to this podcast have got examples of stories of the, the curse of the crying boy. It doesn't have to be their own. It could be a friend of a friend because we're interested, and we've spoken about this before, as folklorists in how stories travel and how they change and develop. So if people have examples of this, uh, there will be links on the Folklore Podcast website to uh, David's work and also send, you can send them to the podcast, the Folklore Podcast at gmail.com or via the website um, and we can pass them on. And it would be really useful, wouldn't it, to collect more examples of it still as it goes on. Yeah, and I'd be interested not just in stories about the crime boy, but any other haunted um, artwork or, or any other associated stories, because the other aspects of this that we haven't touched upon are um, there are stories that suggest that the boy or some of the children in the paintings are actually gypsy children. So you've got this idea of a very potent sort of gypsy curse. And I, I've also heard that the paintings are very popular in South America, and one of the stories that circulates in Brazil is that um, the painter, presumably Bragolin, had made a pact with the devil to sell copies of um, the print, and that's why the print is cursed. And I've also heard stories about 
um, the boy being a spirit who is trapped inside the painting or the print, and that it's only by burning the print can the spirit escape. So there's a whole host of sort of linked stories and narratives and, and variants of the original story that are circulating. So anyone who's sort of come across examples of that kind, I'd love to hear from them. Absolutely, and and I would too. So so do post them on the, the podcast discussion group, send them to me or send them to Dave, and, and we'll see if we can collect some more examples. Um what then to to wrap this story up does this teach us as folklorists and what what do we gain from this story that we can put to good use in in the area of work that with which we're engaged um well there's a number of different things i'd, I'd i would again go back to this point that people tend to sort of look at folklore and urban legends as something that other people have you know, people out there, you know, ignorant people, superstitious people. And, of course, that doesn't include us. And I think what this story shows is is how close to home um, those kinds of beliefs and superstitions are and the fact that although we regard ourselves as being um, advanced and um, scientific and that we know how the world works and that we don't believe in this sort of stuff, we do actually believe in it. And th- this story sort of exemplifies that and it's... It, it teaches us a lot of things about um, what it is. There's, there's, there's certain sort of themes that come out of it, and this idea of a curse, that even the most um, hard-headed um, sort of um, scientific, up-to-date person who doesn't believe in any of this nonsense, you know, if he, I mean, some, I think it was a psychologist did a, um, an experiment where they presented someone with a, um, a sweater that they said belonged to Fred West, the serial killer, and said, would you like to put it on? And no one wanted to touch it. Now, why would a sweater who belonged to someone who happened to be a serial killer um, have that effect on people? It's because people have this idea that somehow some kind of residue of that evil could potentially be transferred to you if you touch it. And that is takes us back to medieval superstition. And it suggests... Well, we should all realise this anyway, that well, although we, we, we're technologically advanced, we are very, very... We are, we are the same people who sort of looked up at the sky in Paleolithic times tens of thousands of years ago and wondered what the hell those, those, those stars were in the sky and, and came up with myths and legends to explain you know, how the universe worked. We haven't changed physically and psychologically uh, for tens of thousands of years. No, indeed, uh, and nor really have the kinds of stories which uh, which inform us or which we use to understand the world around us. Um, the content might vary, um, and and the way that we engage with those stories might vary to a certain extent. But ultimately, we still use a lot of narrative and symbolism to decode the world around us and that's that's where these kinds of stories come from isn't it ultimately exactly yeah. and that's why folklore is such such an important and you know it, it deserves to have more importance as a, as a as a subject that we should all be studying and understanding absolutely I... it concerns everything we do and believe and act upon it does i agree with you entirely it's a very very important point uh Thank you very much, David, for for that. It's a really, really interesting um, story and and one that I think we can learn an awful lot from. Um, If people want to find out more about you and your work in this story and elsewhere, what are the best routes that they should take? Um, 
Well, they could um, the first port of call, if you want to read more about it, if you go to my uh, blog, which is where you will find drdavidclark.co.uk, and the blog is called Folklore and Journalism. It's where I combine my journalistic interests with my folkloric interests. And um, I am in the process of writing a paper on the crime boy phenomenon, which I hope um, Folklore Journal will publish at some point in the future. Um, so I am actively gathering um, material on this subject, even though I already have mountains of references, but I'm always um, willing to, uh, to 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 um, to entertain more stories and and, and add to my collection. Excellent. So, yeah, please get in touch with me or, or speak to Mark or contact contact both of us. Indeed, and I will put links to all of those places on our website so that people can do that and get in touch with you directly. Thank you, David, very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me on. My thanks go to Dr David Clark for getting Season 3 off to a fascinating start. There is a wealth of information on many folklore topics on David's website at www.drdavidclark.co.uk and I would encourage everyone to take a look at some of his discussions on there. The Folklore Podcast will be back later in the month. I look forward to welcoming you back then. Thanks for listening. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash Folklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.